Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. Well, since the pandemic has been a thing and we're still in it, media, especially watching movies and things, has really been one of the lifelines for me. I'm sure it's been the same for most of you guys, too, right? Yeah. You got to pretend that the world is sort of (laughs) normal. That's right. Well, Gizmodo is reporting that a woman was hit with embezzlement charges for a 20-year-old overdue VHS tape rental. Wow. <laughs> I know that was quite the segue, but we're going to make it fit. So, you know, a lot of us may have, you know, be too young to remember. But yes, Gen Z's, this used to be a thing. And in 1999, an Oklahoman woman rented a VHS tape of the then hit sitcom Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And her failure to return it ended up branding her record with felony embezzlement charges. What? Wow. I know. So the woman's name is Karen McBride, and she now lives in Texas. And she didn't even realize this was a thing until she went to a local DMV to change her name on her driver's license after getting married. She explained to a local news affiliate that she understandably did not even remember renting the movie in the first place. (sighs) Quote, I mean, I didn't try to deceive anyone over Samantha, the teenage witch. I swear. (laughs) She didn't even get the witch's name right. She didn't know the name of it. (laughs) No. So court records shared with the news outlet showed the VHS tape was rented at a video rental spot in Norman, Oklahoma. That's been closed since 2008. And according to the docket, that tape was, at the time, worth just under $60. Well, yeah, because the theory was that Blockbuster was going to rent it out several times. So if you were buying the video to rent it, it cost a lot more. Exactly right. So one of the arguably cruelest twists here is that she herself probably wasn't even the person that rented the video. As she explained to the TV news, the likely culprit was a man she was living with at the time and his two daughters. Ah. But meanwhile, over the past decades, she said that she was let go from several jobs with no reason given. Now she's putting the pieces together and thinks maybe that felony embezzlement charge might have had something to do with it. Yeah. (laughs) But there is a happy ending here. The Cleveland court where McBride's case was initially filed was ordered to drop the charges and expunge her record. So (laughs) thank goodness. So, but how many other people, I mean, not returning a tape to Blockbuster was kind of a semi-common thing. People would do it. So like how many other people are out there walking around with felony records that they don't even know about? (laughs) Right, the crime and, lords of Blockbuster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how are they going to find out? Because she lived with this for years and had no idea that this was a thing. Yeah, no, if somebody runs a background check on you and finds a felony embezzlement charge, they're not going to be like, hey, do you know about this? They're going to assume you know. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it was all a plot and she really did embezzle a lot of money. And now she's like, no, it was just one tape, I swear. Yeah, she was running underground viewing rings of surely (gasps) what was maybe just a few episodes of Sabrina. Because they're not all going to fit on a single VHS tape. That's right. No. Allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from LitHub.com by Genki Ferguson, and it's titled Objectophilia. 
on the people who fall in love with inanimate things. Ooh. So, and we're yes. not just talking about anime body pillows here, right? No, although we get into a little bit of that. <laughs> hey, all right. <laughs> so, the first known case was in 1979. Ija Ritta had seen the Berlin Wall on television at the age of seven and, struck by its long parallel lines, fell in love. She tied the knot on their sixth visit together, marrying the Berlin Wall and taking it as her last name, (laughs) Berliner Mauer. (laughs) And she regarded the tearing down of the wall as a catastrophe and slept with a 1 to 20 scale model until her death in 2015. Whoa, that's committed. Yeah. I mean, it's marriage, so I guess it is literally for life, you know, until death do you part. (laughs) That's right. right. I mean, if one of you dies... At least you know the other one's faithful. <laughs> yes. um, in 2018, Akihiko Kondo spent 2 million yen to marry animated pop idol Hatsune Miku. And Miku, a Vocaloid, mm-hmm. was developed in 2007 by Krypton Future Media. She serves as a mascot for a voice bank software in which users can compose their own songs for the virtual character. Miku stands 158 centimeters tall, sports teal pigtails, and has a suggested vocal range of A3 to E5 or B2 to B3. She's appeared as a hologram at concerts and as a doll at Kondo's wedding. None of his family <laughs> attended the ceremony, Aww, as the yeah. article points out. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I know this is unrelated, but if you have a synthetic vocalist, why even bother with a range? Like, shouldn't they just be able to sing anything? I mean, it's a branding thing, you yeah. know? Like, mm. this is the voice's character. Like, mm. <laughs> it's it's intense. Mm-hmm. It goes without saying, of course, that objectophiliacs are often the target of derision or mockery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the author's expanding on the idea of love as well, and perhaps even argue that ridiculous though they may seem, these cases are just the natural conclusion to the relationships the rest of us already hold. Oh, So yeah, the author Genki Ferguson has a debut novel, Satellite Love, and it concerns itself with one such objectophile, Anna Obata, a 16-year-old girl in southern Japan who falls in love with a satellite. Mm-hmm. It was through writing that Ferguson found himself drawn into the psychology of objectophiliacs. So Ferguson asked Dasha Yildirim, a Vancouver-based ceramicist, how she felt (laughs) about this object worship. And Yildirim creates what are called ball-jointed dolls. They're highly Mm. tuned porcelain figures with complex articulated joints, and well-known names can sell for thousands of dollars. People love dolls for two reasons, she says. On one level, it's an aesthetic love. They love these dolls because they're beautiful, posable, and customizable, in essence, a value-based love. And on the other hand, people love dolls because they feel real. The dolls feel sad when you're sad, happy when you're happy. They reflect what we value in ourselves. And Yildirim isn't the first to come to this conclusion. There's a fair bit of scholarship on the concept of comfort objects, the toys that children latch onto, and the adults who never threw them away. A popular working theory introduced by pediatrician Donald Woods Winnicott is that of the transitional object. In the early stages of development, the child sees their mother as a sort of extension of themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, when the child wishes for something, the mother provides, creating what Winnicott calls a subjective omnipotence. Hmm. But with time, the realization that the child is actually separate and therefore dependent on the mother creates shock, stress, and frustration. 
So Winnicott maintains that it's here that the child creates a dependence on the transitional object, often a toy or a blanket. Mm. And this transitional object is the first separate item that truly belongs to the child. And it's something to project this new, scared sense of self onto. So the question is asked, is it so surprising then that these cases of objectophilia seem to have become increasingly prevalent in the modern age, a time when our true distances from each other, our inability to ever truly understand, have become all the more apparent? And this is where Ferguson wants to expand on this idea of love. The working definition of objectophilia mentions only sexual or romantic love, a rather limiting expression, one which bars any possibility of platonic, aesthetic, familial, or religious love. So this brings us around to Shintoism. Uh Yeah. (laughs) This is very much a fake piece. The author is uh, pulling together a lot of uh, disparate places, but I think it's a pretty fair argument and a nice way to reflect on, you know, one's own novel that they've worked on. Right, right. um, (laughs) One of the oldest sustained animist religions still practiced today is Shintoism, and it has deep roots throughout Japan. It predates even the arrival of Buddhism on those shores. It's a religion that maintains that all things, living or otherwise, contain kami, something halfway between a spirit and a god. Hmm. Kami are traditionally viewed as existing within nature, but by some definitions include man-made objects as well, including cars, cell phones, or the Berlin Wall. (laughs) And if this is sounding familiar, perhaps Marie Kondo's philosophies are also coming to mind. Mm. It's not without irony that Ferguson notes how Japan's obsession with mascots perhaps mirrors their own polytheistic animist backings. The same nation which now produces hologram Hatsune Mikus has a deep-rooted belief in the spirit of the inanimate. Mm -hmm. It's also why, to mirror Anna's own journey with the satellite, Satellite Love also follows the overlapping tale of Soki Tachibana, a young Shinto boy who finds himself doubting his belief in the kami in a crisis of faith. As one character gets drawn into a modern definition of object worship, so too does another find himself pulling away. Hmm. And Yildirim says, unlike with people, we can't put expectations on inanimate things. And unlike people, they can't disappoint. We don't love objects despite them not being human. We love them precisely because they aren't human. Hmm. And so Ferguson wonders if this could be used as a bomb for lonely times. When connection with another feels so difficult, could we instead look around deeper into the materials that surround us? perhaps emerging with a newfound appreciation for the little things that make up a life, the small values, desires, and personalities that our objects reflect. Some might refer to this as a regression, but Ferguson argues that instead, it's a process that allows us to come to a complete, deliberate understanding of the self, and perhaps by turning that appreciation outwards, it can turn into something for each other too. All right. You you won me over at the end. I was sitting there going like, all right, no, these are all just crazy people. But I, you know what? It got philosophical enough. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm willing yeah. to buy it. Yeah. You know, at first I wasn't sure if I was going to do this sort of article because it's a little <laughs> bit different from normal. Yeah. But I thought it brought in a lot of interesting ideas. It promotes a really good sounding book, honestly. Yeah. And it, it talks about a lot of cool stuff. So, yeah. That's like the whole trend of putting googly eyes on things. Like, it's just <laughs> exactly. a, a bigger, deeper version of that. But everybody likes a stapler with googly eyes on it. So, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, half my apartment is anthropomorphized at this point. So, yeah. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, this next one is a happy little article about Bob Ross. It's oh. by Zachary Crockett at the Hustle, and it's called Why It's Nearly Impossible to Buy an Original Bob Ross Painting. Hmm. 
And it's true. You would think that they would be relatively easy to get a hold of because over his lifetime, Bob Ross created over 30,000 paintings. Whoa. By comparison, Picasso is considered one of the most prolific famous artists, and he only created around 13,000. Van Gogh only painted around 900, and Leonardo da Vinci created a measly 20. Wow. But first, the article takes a quick detour into Bob Ross's life, which is pretty fascinating in its own right. So he was born in 1942 in Florida. He dropped out of school in ninth grade to work with his father, who was a carpenter. Once he turned 18, he joined the Air Force and was stationed in Alaska, where he became a drill sergeant. Which, I don't know if you guys can imagine Bob Ross as a drill sergeant. I struggle. Yeah, Yeah, he he has a strong military background, actually. Sometimes I struggle with it, but then I think back to that aphorism that it's always the quiet ones. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and apparently even among the other drill sergeants, he had a particularly stern reputation, earning him the nickname Bust-Em-Up Bobby. Wow. But in his spare time for being a drill sergeant, he liked to paint, and he was particularly inspired by an artist named Bill Alexander who had his own TV show on PBS called The Magic of Oil Painting. Oh. So Bob Ross's gimmick at first was he would paint little landscapes on Alaskan gold mining pans and sell them as souvenirs to tourists. But before long, he was making more from the art than he was from the military. So in 1981, he moved back to Florida and became an official student of Bill Alexander, who crucially taught him his signature wet-on-wet technique, where you don't have to wait for one layer of paint to dry before adding more. And this is, of course, what allowed him to eventually paint a whole landscape within a 30-minute TV show. So it was a pretty Mm. important aspect of his career. So for about a year, he just worked as a painting teacher himself in Florida. But then Alexander's show, The Magic of Oil Painting, went off the air in 1982. And one of Bob Ross's students, Annette Kowalski, convinced him that he could fill the void. Weirdly enough, Mm. her husband, Walt Kowalski, had just retired from the CIA. And so they had a lot of money and nothing to do, so they agreed that this would be a nice little project to keep them all busy. So the three of them pooled their money, and they formed a company called Bob Ross, Inc. They pitched it to a PBS executive. He liked it. And The Joy of Painting went on the air in 1983. Wow. It ran for 11 years and probably would have gone on for much longer if he hadn't developed lymphoma and died at the age of 53. The show went right up to the end of his death, and at the very end, it was being syndicated on over 300 stations nationwide and reaching an audience of about 80 million viewers. Wow. Wow. As a complete side note, this article actually linked to an older article from the Washington Post that was all about Bob Ross's apparent obsession with squirrels. He had a pet squirrel named Peapod that made several appearances on the show. Peapod? Yeah. (laughs) And Joan Kowalski, the daughter of Annette and Walt and current president of Bob Ross, Inc., said that he would just drop to his knees and play with any squirrel he saw in public. And he had this big enclosure outside his home in Orlando where he would nurse injured squirrels back to health before releasing them. Like he was, you know, it's one of those things you don't want to meet your heroes. But everything I've heard is like, no, this guy is the real deal. He's adorable and wonderful unless he's being a drill sergeant at you, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) So sweet. Interestingly, Bob Ross was never directly paid for any of the shows. And the art he created was officially owned by the parent company, Bob Ross, Inc., Of course, he was a part owner of that company, and they used it as a platform to sell paints, instructional videos, and other merchandise. So by 1991, 
it was generating $15 million per year or about $29 million today, which, okay. side note, when they made that dollar conversion, it made me feel so old. Because, of course, you know, <laughs> yes, this was 30 years ago. There's been some inflation, but it doesn't feel like it was that long ago, no. you know? And so they're like, oh, no, in old 90s dollars. And I'm like, oh, my God, just <laughs> kill me now. That's just rude. Yeah. Super rude. It's because his presence is timeless. That's why. Mm, but, mm-hmm. but back to the idea of if you wanted to buy one of these paintings. In total, he made 381 episodes of his show, which actually accounts for 1,143 paintings because for each episode, he would paint the same image three times, once before taping, once during, and then once after, which they don't explain. Like, I get the once before. It's like, okay, let me get my pattern down. Okay, now I'm going to tape it. But then Mm -hmm. why after? I don't understand. Huh. But the rest of the 30,000 came from his time before the show in Alaska, plus daily seminars, public events, and charity auctions after he became famous, which he was apparently doing just on a daily basis. He was constantly out there. And a lot of these paintings were just given away at the event because, as Joan Kowalski noted, quote, he was about as uninterested in the actual paintings as you could possibly be. For him, it was the journey. He wanted to teach people. The paintings were just a means to do that. So because of all this, a lot of his works are just sitting in regular people's homes, and they're not really interested in selling, even though some can go for up to $95,000 when they do come up for auction. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. One rare art collector who declined to be named for the article said she has both a Bob Ross original and a Picasso, and the Bob Ross gets far more comments from friends. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he was kind of like the people's painter, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everybody likes him. But if you do want to just see one instead of own it, it's actually pretty easy. There's the Bob Ross Gallery in New Smyrna, Florida, the Bob Ross Experience in Muncie, Indiana, and four of his paintings are actually owned by the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. I don't know how often they put them on display, but they're there. So So I wonder if you actually go to the Bob Ross Experience, do you like travel through his life and then get yelled at by a drill sergeant before (laughs) getting to the paintings? That would be awesome if they had like a little, like a a museum display where you push a button and it plays Mm -hmm. the audio and he yells at you. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, at thehustle.co, you could learn how a secretary and single mom was the inventor of liquid paper. Y'all remember liquid paper, right? Yes, and I know Um, a weird urban legend that may not be true. So you tell me who invented it and I'll see if I'm right. Well, give me your urban legend because it wasn't until I read the end of this that I made that connection was like, oh, but tell me what you've heard. I've heard that she was the mother of one of the monkeys, the band. Bingo. Yep. It's true. So her, That's awesome. It's absolutely 100% true, at least according to the hustle.co. Right. Um, <laughs> so her name was Betty Nesmith Graham. So if you're thinking of that monkey, it's probably Mike Nesmith. He's mm-hmm. the one that wore the hat and was kind of... The monkeys were like the first band I ever had a crush on when I was a kid because <laughs> we watched Nick at Night. Uh-huh. Definitely showing my age here, but he always wore the beanie. Anyway, um, <laughs> she was a native Texan. Hey, hey, hey. All right. And in 1956, she sat in a garage surrounded by buckets of white tempera paint, empty nail polish bottles, and handmade labels, and had no idea that she was on the brink of something truly revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And that product she would eventually create was called liquid paper. 
She did not have a background as a chemist or an engineer. She was just a single mom from Texas who had a brilliant idea while working a nine to five job as a secretary. But she was also kind of a product marketing genius. So over several decades, she found a need in the market. She organically grew her business. She staved off the competition and she bootstrapped her way to a $47.5 million exit, which would be roughly $173 million in today's money. And wow. this was all during a time when women were discouraged from pursuing business ventures, right? Yeah. <laughs> she didn't need that monkey's money. She was all good on her own, huh? <laughs> no, no. And it actually raises the question, would he have been a monkey had he not come from money? Huh? Oh, so she made the money before he was a monkey. Okay. Right. right, right. She was raised to be imaginative, strong-willed, and independent. Her mother owned a knitting store and taught her how to paint from a very young age. And her father was a manager at an auto parts company. And he imparted the values of consistency and hard work. But Graham herself didn't really care much for traditional education. Uh, she hmm. dropped out of high school at 17. She married a soldier named Warren Nesmith, how she got the Nesmith name. And she had a baby boy, whom we've already identified at the start of this. <laughs> However, when her husband returned home from World War II, the couple divorced and Graham was left to single-handedly raise this little monkey, right? So mm -hmm. to make ends meet, she found work as a secretary at Texas Bank and Trust. And at that time, IBM had just come out with a new line of electric typewriters that were faster than previous models and they used those carbon film ribbons. But that invention had a few downsides because the keypad itself was so sensitive, there were more typographical errors. Hmm. And because they used these carbon ribbons, they made these errors impossible to erase without leaving smudges all over the paper. Mm -hmm. So she had previously had a side hustle painting window displays at the bank. And she later recalled, an artist never corrects by erasing, but always paints over the error. So after work one day, she went to the library and looked up a recipe for tempera, which is an age-old water-based paint. And she whipped up a white-colored liquid in her kitchen blender, poured it into an empty nail polish bottle, and started secretly using it at work to cover up typos on documents. <laughs> and she tried to keep it a secret because, you know, initially this was a way for her to cover her own mistakes. But right. word got out, and then all the other secretaries wanted in on the action. So by 57, she was selling about 100 bottles a month just to her colleagues. Wow. But there was still increasing demand. So she turned her garage into a mini packing plant. She paid her son and his friends a dollar an hour to fill the little glass bottles and put on the handwritten labels. And she called her product Mistake Out. Hmm. She knew she'd need to improve the quality and consistency of the product because it was still just being made at home. So she got some help from her son's chemistry teacher and an employee at a paint shop. And then on weekends, she would just drive around Texas pitching mistake out to wholesalers. A bunch of them decided to take a pass because what does this woman think sure. she's doing trying to get into business? So she decided to market it herself. And her first big score came after she put a placement in a national supply magazine. She got 500 orders all over the U.S., including wow. a 400 bottle sale just to the General Electric Company, GE. Hmm. But the effort took a toll because one day at work, she accidentally signed off a letter as the mistake out company instead of Texas Bank and Trust. And they fired her. Aw. Wow. But that firing was a blessing in disguise, right? Because this is how she got her really big break. Mm -hmm. So in 1958, she changed the name to Liquid Paper. She filed for a patent. And over the next few years, she sought help from a number of industry professionals, including a polymer chemist named Bill Mallow. And she further refined the product for mass market. By 1964, the production of liquid paper grew 10 times to 5,000 bottles per week, 
Then in 1967, only three years later, the company notched its first $1 million in sales, which in today's money is a cool $8 million. Yeah. And although there were several competitors like Whiteout, which came about in about 1966, she still maintained the lion's share of the market. Hmm. But as her operation took off, people closest to her tried to take advantage of her success. For example, years earlier in 1962, she had married a frozen food salesman named Robert Graham and Hmm. had given him partial control of Liquid Paper's business affairs. Side note, don't do that. In 1976, (laughs) they divorced and he tried to cut her out of the company. Big Hmm. surprise by changing the formula and booting her off the board. But she managed to stave off her ex and maintain a 49% stake in her company. Thank Mm. goodness. When her health started to fail in 1979, she sold liquid paper to Gillette for about $47.5 million, which is around $173 million today, plus royalties on every bottle sold for the next two decades. And then six months after that deal, at the age of 56, she died from a stroke, which was just... (gasps) Kind of tragic timing. But her son, Michael, who, as chance would have it, went on to achieve fame as a member of the 60s pop group, The Monkees. He continued to champion his late mother's legacy, and he even appeared in commercials for liquid paper well into the 90s. And he even continued to receive those royalties from the deal his mother had worked out, and he used those to launch a music video company called Pop Clips, which was a predecessor to MTV that I had never heard of. But she left behind much more than a fortune, because at that time, corporations also didn't offer much in the way of employee benefits. And this was, for its time, a super progressive firm. So they had on-site childcare facilities. They had an employee-owned credit union. They had wheelchair-accessible facilities, tuition reimbursement, and a racially integrated staff that recognized affirmative action policies. And during her life, while she was making really good money, she also established two philanthropic foundations, one that supported women in the arts and the other that offered assistance to disadvantaged women. What a badass, right? So she just rocks in every way. And then her son was adorable. (laughs) That's right. And he was raised by a single mother during a time when there was a huge stigma and taboo Mm -hmm. against that. Well, I wish they don't have the liquid paper paintbrushes anymore. Now it's all like little tapes. I don't know if you guys ever use whiteout. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I miss the whiteout because it had that kind of like spongy wedge applicator. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a kid, I would use whiteout as a nail polish when I was bored during class. (laughs) My guess is they moved to the ribbon because it's a little bit cleaner. It doesn't dry out as quickly. Mm -hmm. And you also can't get sniffing on the solvents. (laughs) I hadn't even thought about that angle. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I remember the smell of whiteout. Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from Inverse.com, and it's titled, Why Are Pets So Good for Mental Health? Science Explained. All right. <laughs> Which, you know, I think we probably have a pretty good idea, mm-hmm. but it's some nice pet stories. Yeah, I'll take all the validation that I can get. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So it's no secret this past year has taken a toll on our collective mental health. As the article says, it's been a lot. But for millions of people around the world, there's one factor that's helped keep them afloat, which is their pets. Yep. The benefit of a pet is something you might feel, but it's harder to explain exactly why you feel that way. So numerous scientific studies suggest the mental health benefits of companion animals, particularly for those already experiencing mental health concerns Mm pre-pandemic. However, this human-pet relationship may not always lead to long-term mental health benefits. A study on companion-animal relationships during lockdown found that adolescent dog owners were still lonelier and had fewer social attachments to people during the pandemic, so 
Pets were a highly used strategy for coping with stress, but they still couldn't replace interactions with others. Sure. Mm. Michael Manning from Murphy, North Carolina, recently lost a beloved five-year-old dog to congestive heart failure. However, Manning found a way to move forward when he and his wife, Lynn, began caring for two eight-week-old Belgian Turveran puppies, Mm. Stein and Versingatorix, during the (laughs) pandemic. Wait, I'm sorry, that's the dog's name? Yes, these are the dog's names. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Stein lived up to his namesake, which is a Belgian word meaning constant and steadfast, as did Versingatorix, or nickname Rix, much Uh, easier to say. There you go. Who is named for a Celtic warrior. All right. And Manning says, the two pups gave me a focus and a reason to get up in the morning. And now the second pup, with each passing week, looks more and more like the one we lost. Yeah. Peggy Thompson from Napa, California, has a similar story about her mixed border collie terrier dog, which she adopted from a pound four years ago. Thompson says, my pet surely helped me in that she forced me to keep a schedule. She knows when it is time to get up and time to eat. Without her, I would have been tempted to sleep too much. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's not just pets benefiting humans. It's likely that animals also benefited from extended care during the pandemic. Mm. Sure. As they may see their pet more often, many pet owners have been more observant of their pet's behavior and their needs. Cynthia Stinger from Mount Laurel, New Jersey, has a beloved cat, Hannibal. Hannibal is a domestic black shorthair cat who spent the first six months of his life in a no-kill animal shelter. Stinger says, when I brought him home three years ago, he was very skittish and would hide under the bed at the slightest provocation. He slowly became less anxious over time, but the pandemic really kickstarted his socialization, Stinger says. In summation, constantly being around my scaredy cat has made him much more social and accepting of my presence. However, he still hates the vacuum cleaner. (laughs) Well, who doesn't, really? I'm not a fan. So I know this is tangentially related, but the new kitten that I got and adopted, I think, last June, not afraid of the vacuum cleaner. Hmm. Like, he's not thrilled with it, but he's not traumatized or Hmm. terrified by it. It is both amazing and unusual. Yeah. Just thought I'd throw that out. They're evolving. (laughs) Our primary defense is gone. (laughs) You joke about that, but I have had kind of a running theory or possibly a premise for a sci-fi book, which is that because people have been adopting animals in record numbers, I'm pretty sure that we're going to have a mass toxoplasmosis infection Mm. happening worldwide where cats eventually take over as the primary species on the planet. They'll probably do a better job than we will. That's (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it might be heading that way. You know, the article continues, that doesn't mean it's all been sunshine and rainbows, however. For example, one study examining the effects of the lockdown in Spain found that pets showed signs of behavioral change that were consistent with stress, with dogs that had pre-existing behavioral problems being the most affected. Mm. So pets, especially younger ones, thrive on daily routines, and COVID-19 significantly disrupted those routines, leading to some pets getting fatter due to lack of exercise (laughs) or excessive snacking. Yeah, haven't we all? I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from Quartz or QZ.com. It's called The Founder of Moderna Doesn't Think Vaccines Are All That Impressive. Okay. Well, someone's been listening to too much Joe Rogan. No, no, it's not so bad. So what it's really talking about is the mRNA technology that the recent COVID vaccines are built on. Mm. So the founder of Moderna, Derek Rossi, first began studying messenger RNA in 2008, building on the long ignored research of Hungarian Katalin Karakó, 
And we didn't talk about it at the time, but there was actually a really great article in the Curated Links a couple months ago about Katalin Karako in particular and how she really laid the groundwork for all mRNA and was largely ignored because she was a woman. Yeah. Anyway, I encourage anyone to dig back into the archives if you're interested in hearing her story. At any rate, Derek Rossi didn't ignore her work. And in 2010, he made the specific discovery that a modified form of mRNA could be inserted into human cells and trick those cells into producing a wide variety of proteins, hmm. which unlocked a huge range of possibilities because for most medicine, you're injecting a substance that is going to do something to your body, whereas with mRNA treatments, you're using the body's own processes to create an ongoing supply of something. As Rossi put it, quote, DNA makes RNA, makes protein, makes life. So wherever there's life, which is in all of disease pathology, mRNA mm -hmm. could potentially play a role. So in the wake of this discovery, he formed a company to research and license this technology for mod RNA or Moderna, which, mm. yeah, I did not know that's where the name came from. And I was kind of annoyed <laughs> to find out. But... <laughs> But their main focus up to now has actually been in curing severe genetic diseases because quite a lot of those are based on nothing more than the body can't code for this specific protein. Mm. They also have a lot of early research on cancer treatments. And based on just that, just early research and studies, they've raised over a billion dollars in the last decade, despite the fact that they hadn't yet had a single medicine approved for the market because the research results have just been that promising. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So they're working on these major things that are going to revolutionize all of medicine. And then COVID comes along and they were like, yeah, I guess we could knock out a vaccine real quick. And <laughs> literally a month later, they had a candidate ready to go. Wow. To quote Rossi, it's a very low technical bar. He's like, I'm doing important <laughs> things here. What is this nonsense? All right. Global pandemic. We'll knock that out so I can yeah. get to the real stuff. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but of course, with the publicity that the COVID vaccine brought, he said now, quote, there's a new mRNA company sprouting up every day around the planet like mushrooms. And I can tell you they're not going to be vaccines. That would be ridiculous. So oh my God. He's, like, he's like, vaccines are fine, but they're so boring. They're like super easy. Why do we even care? We're doing important stuff here. He predicts that we'll have the first non-vaccine mRNA therapeutic drug within five years, and there will be at least 25 or 30 approved ones in the next decade. Huh. Interestingly, Rossi said his personal mRNA holy grail isn't cancer or genetic diseases. The thing he's really passionate about treating is venomous snake bites. Huh. Yeah. He says acute poisoning is something that mRNA is uniquely positioned to solve because the disease, so to speak, progresses so quickly and most antivenoms are not shelf stable. He said nearly huh. 100,000 people a year die from snake bites worldwide. And up until now, no one's really been investing in any kind of research because a lot of these creatures are very locally indigenous, right? Like we have good treatments mm -hmm. for the four types of venomous snakes you find in North America, but nobody's trying right. to treat for a snake that only lives in the remote jungles of Indonesia or wherever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to sort of tie everything up in a neat little bow, did you guys know there is actually a vaccine for rattlesnake venom? No. no. Wait, you can get it before getting bit mm -hmm. by... Huh. And I will say, I don't know if it's approved in humans. What I know is there's a giant billboard. If you go outside of town, like sort of north into the Liberty Hill direction, where it's like Rattlesnake City, mm -hmm. they have big billboards saying, ask your vet about getting a rattlesnake venom vaccine for your dog. 
I was because, just going to say yeah. for dogs because they're typically the ones that get the brunt of the bite just from rooting mm-hmm. around or defending owners. Right. Or they're just too dumb to know that's not a rattly toy. Stay away. Like <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah. they want to believe because their hearts are so pure. And so they think they're friends. That's right. And they take the bite and then they die. Unless oh. you, well, because you can't, like, rattle, <laughs> on, honest to God, rattlesnake anti-venom is like $100,000 around. Like, it's, yeah. I'm not even kidding. It's ridiculous. It's super wow. expensive and yeah. it can only work within a certain time frame right. and so right. if you're way out in the sticks it's harder for you to get that in time the vaccine man that's a that's yeah. a great thing to know about i hope it, it's available now i mean you said you saw a billboard i see it? billboards for it all the time they're like tell your vet okay. you can get your dog vaccinated for rattlesnake venom so presumably wow. it works i mean they wouldn't completely make it up i don't think I don't... <laughs> does that mean i can finally adopt a rattlesnake um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you're in an apartment. You can't afford any kind of like home security system. But I'll tell you what, pet yeah. rattlesnake lives here. Yeah, yeah. That's true. And you, mean, companion pets are really important for mental health right now, you guys. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just keep it in like a terrarium next to my window so that anybody who wants to, you know, case my apartment in this apartment complex can be like, oh, crap, that's right. That's an actual rattlesnake. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the other articles we did not have time to get to today include China's space station launch might cost lives on the ground, how the Pentagon started taking UFOs seriously, and do snakes have ears? So if you appreciate the complete lack of ads on this podcast, you can show your appreciation at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. You can also leave us a nice review if you're so inclined. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 